to the Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron John. G'day, Mob. Welcome back to the Octarine Tree podcast. Today, we're talking with Australian landscape architect and academic Richard Weller. Richard Weller is one of those guys who is a household name to those who know him. (laughs) I was introduced to Richard's work by a dear friend of mine, shout out to Boo. I quickly became a pretty big fan of his work. He spent a few years working at the University of Western Australia. He then moved to become professor and chair of landscape architecture at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, which is a a big honor. He also holds the Martin and Margie Mayerson Chair of Urbanism at the University of Pennsylvania and is on the board of directors of the Landscape Architecture Foundation in Washington, D.C. And as mentioned, he was formerly a Winthrop Professor of Landscape Architecture at the University of Western Australia and Director of the Australian Urban Design Research Centre. There were heaps of questions I didn't get to ask Richard because just the way the nature of this discussion flowed, the directions in which it went. I wanted to ask him more about key line design and other Australian land management and land design modalities. Didn't get time to do that, but we did discuss his time in Berlin, the differences and similarities between US and Australian culture, mental health in relationship to place, the inherent existential tensions of modern life, humans as keystone species, rewilding, and a whole lot more. Uh, Richard is a seriously clever chap. I do recommend you go check out some of his presentations on YouTube, wherever you may find them. I would love to have chewed his ear further. He's digested a whole lot of, of data, a whole lot of information, and you can tell that he's thought very, very long and hard about lots of these subjects. So without further ado, Richard Weller. Richard Weller, welcome to the Octarine Tree Podcast. How are you? Good, thanks, man. Thanks for um, contacting me. I'm happy to talk. My pleasure. I was really looking forward to it. As uh, I did mention in my uh, introductory email to you, I was thinking for quite some time about doing landscape architecture at UWA. Mm. And everyone I spoke to said, oh, maybe when Richard was involved, but not anymore. So that kind of pricked my ears up. And I went around and sniffed out your works and um, became a, a big fan pretty quickly. Would you do us a favour, mate, and just give us a brief kind of elevator pitch background on where you're from? Okay, very quickly. I'm, I'm actually from Sydney. but it's, So I, the way I got to Perth was... Um, to cut a very long story short, I was working in Berlin in Germany in the early 1990s. I, you know, packed my bags and went there after the Berlin Wall came down because I thought it was an interesting place to be, and it was. Um, but after four years of work there, I was invited by an old friend to come back to Australia and start a design program, and that happened to be at the School of um, Fine Arts and Architecture in Perth at at the University of Western Australia. And so I thought, you know, I felt like that would be pretty interesting going from sort of Berlin, which was 
felt a bit like the centre of the universe to the most remote place on Earth. And I'd never been to Perth, so I found it very interesting and then stayed there for, gee, it must have been 15 years or so. And then I've moved to the United States to take up another position at a um, uh, in, in here in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I've been to Berlin. The contrast would have been huge between Perth and Berlin. And people do often cite the fact that Perth is the most isolated capital city on earth. And particularly 10, 20 years ago, it did have this kind of big country town feel to it almost. But it's still, it's not what people think. When people use that term that it's the most isolated capital city in the world, mm. people who haven't been there kind of think Crocodile sure, Dundee sure. or something, but it's not quite that. Yeah. No, it's nothing. No, I mean, nowhere's isolated anymore, really. Um what was interesting in the 1990s in Perth was, apart from just the extraordinary landscape that I'd never experienced before because I come from the East Coast, which is, you know, much juicier, yeah. it was the, the 1990s, there was this build-up around questions of Australian identity and that was work. So I, through design I was involved in projects, things like Federation Square in Melbourne and then the National Museum of Australia in Canberra. So those projects were pretty interesting to me because it was... It seemed like there were questions of Australian identity at stake, you know, and um, mm. and so that was an interesting time to to be working. Yeah, and I was in my teens in the nineties, so I wasn't really mm. tuned into that. But it is mm. interesting. It, I, it does feel like there was a kind of fulcrum or a shifting point then, whereas. Before that, Australians, well, way back in the day, there was kind of Ned Kellyism and Australians identifying themselves as kind of the great egalitarians and, and anti-establishment and whatnot. And then through the 80s, I can remember this vague kind of life be in it. Right. <laughs> Bloke in his stubbies with a sausage on yep. the end of a tong and a, right. and a pair of thongs. Yep. And in the 90s, there was this kind of like dissolving of that. I can remember that. And and now I'm not sure if Australia does know who it is now. We're really working that out still. Sure, sure. How yeah. old were you when you went to Berlin? Were you, and you already working in the capacity of design, landscape design? Yeah, I was. I I graduated from university. Well, look, first I was... Um, when I went to university, I didn't like it, and I so I pissed off for a couple of years and lived on a beach in the northern New South Wales. Yeah. And then I went further north and lived up in the rainforest in Cape Tribulation. And so they were formative years. And then I went back to, you know, I, I did my thing, you know, getting away from everything. And then I went back to university and I was kind of mature and ready for it and, mm. and enjoyed doing it. And that was, I graduated in 1985 and the... You know, the 80s in Sydney was all about the bicentenary and all that sort of crap, yeah. and I wanted to get out of there pretty quickly. So we were quite adventurous, and I, I really wanted to be an artist. You know, I set up a studio in Sydney, and I was painting a lot, trying to be mm. a sort of heroic painter, and that didn't work out too well. So um, I was doing a lot of design competitions to try and just keep my hand in the game but not, you know, try and avoid working in offices and eventually packed my bags and I did, I went, believe it or not, I flew to Cairo. I can't even remember why, but I flew to Cairo right. and then I sort of made my way from there up through up through the Sinai Desert and, and mm. in, through Israel and up into Europe and ended up in Berlin and, night, and the wall had just come down. So there was all this land in Berlin that no one knew what to do with. Right. It was incredible because there were two walls. It wasn't one Berlin wall. And the two walls marked out a, a zone of land 
Greyfields. No, no man's land, which ran for 160 kilometres around West Berlin. So all of a sudden there was all this territory. No one owned it. No one knew what to do with it. And it was a fascinating landscape full of kind of weed. Well, the weeds started coming in. I mean, the land was originally cleared, so they could, if anyone tried to cross that zone, they could shoot you, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it was so – and then the Germans were very good at colonising that empty space and doing stuff, like without designers. It, they didn't need designers, and I was pretty interested in that. They just did. Yeah, that people could just take over – derelict land and much of that land was shameful like it's really a, a fraught history mm. and turn it into this incredibly productive like urban agriculture a lot of theater a lot of just impromptu stuff and the whole city came to life and I so it was a very interesting experience and um it suited my temperament because I was kind of anti-design insofar as designers tend to you know, gentrify everything inadvertently or otherwise. Were you involved in that in any capacity or were you kind of a fly on the wall? I was. I was a lot. I, did, I spent, I mean, I did a research project for four years. I set myself the task of doing a set of drawings about the city in a way trying to understand the city because it's very complex and very dark history. Mm. But I was officially involved with um, different architects working on the plans for, you know, part of the um, the sort of the reunification of Berlin between East and West. Did those actualise your particular input? Uh, they did not because we produced plans that were just at the time way too radical. I mean, in the end, what was frightening about Berlin was that the establishment pulled out 19th century plans of the old original city and kind of it was almost like forgetting history. They just sort of forgot the 20th century had happened and they started to reconstruct the city as if it was the 19th century. And this was happening precisely on the land where Adolf Hitler had committed suicide. And so it just didn't seem quite right. Yeah, odd, poignant. What did it become? I'm curious. Well, if you go to the centre of Berlin now, the most... The, fa- the famous centre of Berlin is the Potsdamer Platz, and it's a, a it's a fairly banal collection of modern buildings and a couple of sort of skyscrapers. Um, and you'd be you wouldn't know the twentieth century had happened under your feet. Right, curious. No, I don't think the, the Berliners don't even go there. It's just a sort of. <laughs> this. I have to sniff it out next. If and when I'm back there, when I was in Europe, I was a 19 year old backpacker, and I didn't have quite yep. the appreciation for things that I do now, but. When you went to Penn State, had you spent a fair bit of time in the US beforehand or was that no. your No, so, well, it's not Penn State. This is the University of Pennsylvania, so they are they often get confused, but they're quite different things. Right, okay. Oh, I had. I mean, I, I travelled. I had been to the United States a few times, but not, you know, I'd never lived here. And so we, we left Perth in 2012 and came to Philadelphia and um, have been here ever since. Do you note anything that struck you about the immediately about the difference between Australian relationship to country? What what did what struck you immediately, if you recall? Anything from that period? Relationship to country is an interesting expression because there's a there is of course a a very bloody and um, history of colonization here. So yeah. Philadelphia is effectively where the, the the nation of the United States began. Right. Um, you know, the oldest street in the United States is in Philly. And yeah. um, 
they did, you know, William Penn went and, and the, so the Europeans did meet Indigenous people here in Philadelphia in the early 18th century and they did form a kind of a treaty. Mm. But as those things often went, it was a bit of a con job or it became a con job as time unfolded. And so there's been what's interesting about shifting from Australia to the United States is the way, the, the, the degree to which the Americans have erased Indigenous history mm. is, is, is frighteningly thorough, let's put it that way. Whereas in Australia, I think the the indigeneity of Australia has come up, you know, it's come up through the ground and it infects, if that's the, not the right word, but you know what I mean? It's every, it, it, it's, it's... Infuses. Yeah, that's the word. It's funny you say that to cut you off because I was interviewing yeah. a lady, Monica Gagliano, an Italian... Oh, yeah, I know her. Right, yeah. you know, she was at UWA. Yep. I was telling her a bloke who was not Australian, he was saying to me how much he feels that contemporary or European Australia has been influenced outside of its mm. knowledge and awareness by Indigenous Australia. Yeah. And he was giving examples and is it that we're influenced by Indigenous Australia or is it that it's just seeping up through the land? But the older I get, the more I recognise something to that. It's really, it's really interesting. It's really complicated and... It's great that Australia is a place where those relationships are, are being worked through and for, for better and for worse. I mean, it's still really early days, I think, because we're really immature in, in terms of dealing with something as deep and vast and, and different uh, to a, a kind of a Western European worldview. And so it's a, to reconcile those those different worldviews in Australia is really interesting and um, I think we're just scratching the surface on that. I do. I think we're scratching the surface. I think it's very early days, but it's undeniable for anyone paying attention that there is something occurring. There is, there is a, dare I say, groundswell organic movement toward some sort of recognition or reconciliation or at least having a look at what occurred and, and what's happening that I find really positive and refreshing. But I did cut you off, mate. So you were talking about the US. Oh, back to American culture. Well, there's, I mean, there's the obvious things like um, I think the most, one of the most not notable things was and still is to an extent, although I'm a little bit used to it now, um, is the kind of constant positivity. Yeah, like if anyone can, an American. Yeah, relentless, relentlessly positive. And so I go into a lot of meetings where I sit there and people are talking about things they want to do or ideas for this, that and the other. And I, my automatic reaction to many things is, oh, that's bullshit, mate. You know, I'm just mm. like, that's not going to work. Mm. And, I, and I'm the only person in the room that will have that attitude. Everyone else will be, oh, fantastic. We, let's make it bigger and better and we'll, we'll do that for sure. Let's give it a go. And I... Um, and they're often stupid ideas, but off they go and they'll get organised and they'll find money and they'll wear T-shirts and put little caps on and they'll get really active and they do make stuff happen. And mm. it's actually so I've learnt that that's pretty, that you know, it's probably better to be positive in the early phases of something, even if you think it's stupid, just to see how it goes. And even if it yeah. fails, they'll still talk it up and then try something else. No problem. You give it in principle support until it looks like it's going pretty to die much. underwater. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. But there's a flip side to that too, and that is, and I had an Australian friend here and he said, we're leaving. And I said, why? And he said, I've got to get the kids out of here because, and I said, why? And he said, because everything's awesome, you know, and it's just, 
I don't think I, I don't want my children growing up as teenagers in in a place where everything is everyone's a winner and everything's awesome because it's not. Mm. And so that you know that there is a there is a flip side to the positivity, and that is that um, there's a culture of constant positive reinforcement when it's yeah. often just not true. And then, I mean, the whole Trump thing has been a been a really interesting experience. I mean, that's just been the most the most gripping. I mean, the mm. oh yeah, you you've been there through it. It must be the most bizarre thing to live through. Oh, every day, seriously, it's just it's had you by the throat for the last four and a half years. Just just um, relentless, unbelievable. Every day, it's been unbelievable. You know, yeah. you just cannot believe what you're seeing and hearing, um, and and that's. There's still things today that you can't believe. Mm. The way they handled COVID too, the way something like a public health issue gets tangled up in notions of liberty, like it's my liberty. You're telling me I have to wear a mask? You know, I do find it fascinating, like the difference and similarities between Australian culture and American and Canadian and these kind of second generation European mm. colonial exports, how different they can be. And of course, they're going to be different. But that's the thing with the Americans. I mean, their whole genesis is born from this tear it from my cold, dead hands. Don't you dare right. infringe upon my rights. Get away from me. Like yeah. we didn't have to fight a war. You know, it's as valid as it is nauseating. Yeah. The genesis. Yeah. It's funny, the Australian genesis, you know, our relationship to authority is completely different. Like the Americans historically have just been so amicable in some sense to authority, but in others, like when it comes to the crunch, they're willing oh, to. they're radical. They're radical. Uh, they're really radical. Right. So they smile, like they're kind of smiling, glad, handy and pleasant. But if you tread on them, they'll get fucking cranky. Oh, yeah. I think Australians are kind of the other way around. We sit around in the bar talking shit about authority. Yeah. But when it comes to us actually doing something about it, then we actually shrink. We've got this kind of like Eureka Stockade, Ned Kelly kind of facade, or we used to at least. And this is just one man's humble opinion. But underneath that veneer, I don't know if there's there's a whole lot of spine to it. I'll probably get in trouble for saying that, but. Well, I think Australia is a, is a conformist society, actually. Yeah, I would agree. Americans are completely radical. They're, they're wild. You just you can do what you want. You make it up, and and you can invent your own completely fictitious reality and get about living your life that way if you want. And no one can get between you and that. It's wild. Mm. I mean, it really is. It's outrageous in a way, but it's got a use-by date to it. So you know, and it's all it's all fun and games until there is something like a national health emergency like this pandemic. They sit, they they systematically and philosophically and just practically cannot deal with it. The whole system doesn't can't cope with it. Yeah, it works well as a sort of in terms of the movement of ideas, the movement of money, the movement of you know, being entrepreneurial, it works mm. in that regard, but it it doesn't work um, when everyone's, you know, loaded up with weapons and refuses to and is vulnerable to misinformation um, and but but believes they have the the god-given right to do whatever the hell they want. Yeah, 
then, it, then it's it's extremely brittle. You know, the American dream dissolves once you hit a certain ceiling, I imagine. I mean, not the white picket fence and 2.5 kids bullshit, yeah. but upward mobility, mm. ostensibly, freedom and upward mobility. But, you know, how far can you push that in terms of population, in terms of environmental degradation? Yeah, that's a very good question. That That, that is the question. What is the American dream in the 21st century? And that's also right. an Australian question. Like we know what the 20th century was. It was cars, fast food, skyscrapers, aeroplanes, mm. white goods, you know, white people. White goods and white people. That's a T-shirt. And God and, and, and you know, infinite growth. And none of that's going to happen. The 21st century is not that. It's, it's a t- America has to completely re- reinvent itself. And that is happening, but... There are a group of people that are terrified by that change and they don't, they're being left behind. And so you're getting the backlash. And that's what Trump preyed on and continues to prey on. That's largely the reason he was elected, as far as I can see. Yeah. Yeah. All right. To shift, shift, shift shitely, to shift slightly. <laughs> I can't cite this. It was something I just overheard on a radio program, and whatnot. So I don't have numbers in front of me, but. Australian mental health statistics, suicide, substance abuse, et cetera, is up there the highest in the developed world. And there are some people suggesting that it's largely from this disconnection from country and community. I'm not sure if Australians have ever had a functioning village, extended family, community type dynamic. And it's something that we've never actually kind of objectified or come to terms with. Is that something at all that you have sense of? I think what you're saying is that Australians, the Australian condition is one where the, the, the modern world pretty much arrived suddenly in an extremely foreign ecology. Mm. And, and it's taken... And we're only just beginning in Australia to start to actually adapt to that ecology. I think that's what you're saying. And then I think you're saying that cultural identity is is largely dependent on relationships to land and out of that grows almost organically a society. Yeah. And I, I guess that is true in the sense that cultures in different places, the land becomes law, L-O-R-E, over time. And we haven't really developed that deep sense of place in Australia. So you have kind of a thin surface of modernity cast across that incredibly different landscape. And the strangeness of that creates Australian culture. Yeah. What do you see springing forth from that? How do you see that manifesting? I mean, I know this is vague and broad and very open, but just... Well, where I would cut you off would be if you're, if you're thinking, if your tendency is towards a sort of medieval romanticism, that if we all lived in villages and we all cultivated the earth, we would, that returning to your, your point about mental health, we'd be, mm. we'd be better for it. And I get that. I get that because that's also, that, that is a, that's, that's been the constant refrain to modernity, that... Mm the land and cultivation, and it, it's this question of the garden, yeah. the metaphor of the garden and the metaphor of the gardener as a, as a, as a way of resolving the existential crises of modernity. Because mm. modernity is about violence, it's about speed, it's about displacement, it's about rupture, 
It's mm-hmm. about the new. I mean, it's that's that's what all all the art of the 20th century was basically a reaction to the trauma of modernity, and so yeah. so too was the other thing to think romanticism in the arts which is poetry painting music all of european romanticism was basically a reaction against the violence of of the modern world the industrial revolution and after all it's it's the industrial revolution that washed up or banged into the shores of australia and 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 mm. unfoiled itself with you know for, with dreadful consequences and so modernity is traumatic yeah and i don't and so it's not a new idea to think that the way out of that trauma is to be grounded in place mm. and and grow an organic society. But it's also profoundly nostalgic. Mm, perhaps a bit naive. I'm personally reacting to the trauma of modernity. I can feel it in my bones and blood walking around day to day. Just don't know what the fuck to do with it. Well, everyone, everyone is to an extent, but... Mm. It's a question of utopia. These these are the sorts of themes I'm interested in. Yeah. The idea of paradise, I think, is very interesting. The idea of utopia, which is the modern world, the modern world's belief is that it can build a modern utopia where everyone has access to goods and, and we can build a better society on our own terms um, through the application of technology, and that's that's patently failed. Well, no, let's be reasonable. The modern world has done a lot of good things and then it's done a lot of really, really bad things and we're now in a situation of planetary ecological crisis. So the climate crisis is actually the result of modernity. So we have to take that on. But the problem is we, we've, I, what I don't think we can do is be comfortable, people like me in the first world, the rich first world, or people like you living in your paradise down there in, in Western Australia, talking about resilience and so on, I feel like go tell that to the guy that's walking around in the Sahel Desert right now mm. in Central Africa with, you know, with two two head of cattle that are virtually dead and, yeah. and a family of eight to feed. And, you know, so we've got to, we've got to constantly shuffle from the the... The, the, the beautiful image and idea of the garden to a planetary scale where we've got we're going to have 10 billion people by the end of this century probably more and we have to feed them or they'll die personally I, I struggle with this stuff all the time and I feel the tension within myself these tensions between I was a not quite card carrying progressive hippie punk all growing up and it was all about change 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 and now that it's happening I'm like oh fuck <laughs> I'm watching these impulses within myself, this tension back and forth and distrusting as well, this distrust I see, I feel within myself and I see of others of whenever there is an attempt to move forward as well. You know, I've been asked to do a talk to critique the Davos Institute's great reset approach to ecology and agriculture. Mm. And I'm tied in a complete fucking knot. Yeah. Because I feel these tensions with myself, this tension of like humans as a keystone species versus what I've heard you before actually discuss it. Lovelock's comments on the hubris of sapiens as a steward, Mm. right? This tension between our need to act and our capacity for both positive and negative impact upon everything around us Mm. versus that kind of futility and hubris, right? And this proclivity we have as a species to create homes right you know we are like we're like the beaver Mm. once upon a time we were nomadic but even then i mean if everything i know about nomadic society is is correct we still created camps 
and we had walking trails and we still do in some parts of the world, right? Mm. So there was, even though there was a lot less taming of the landscape, if you will, there was still this boundary between out there, the unknown and, and, and what we have at least semi-domesticated. And there's this kind of proclivity we have to create these homes and turn vast landscapes into settlements and estates and you know with with fences and walls and then homes and inside the homes there's bedrooms and inside the bedrooms there's beds Mm -hmm. how do we balance this tension between our desire to make a nest for ourselves like it like many other creatures do to a lesser or greater degree and this hubris that Lovelock talks about, this hubris of the idea of humans as stewards. Where is the balance of that? I, I know I just completely ranted. I hope I made sense. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense because the question is can, you, can modernity be tamed or is it, a, is it really a monster out of control, which is kind of akin to saying can capitalism now as a dominant global system ever be reconciled with ecology that that's kind of what what's happening uh, can yeah. can a can a species an intelligent species of with vast machinery and technology and multiplied by you know 10 to 11 12 billion um consumers be reconciled with the ecosystem of the mm. planet and <clears throat> the planet of course doesn't care about this at all and it's got plenty of time on its hands and it'll see this and probably many more civilizations come and go. But from our immediate perspective, it is a question of can are we smart enough to design our way through this because it is now a question of design. Like there's no new land to mm. move into. The city can't go any. We've, we've colonised the entire surface of the planet with urbanisation and its infrastructure. So we're mm. done. And I think that's interesting because the city now is a is the cities cities are a problem. It was a stupid idea to move into cities. The agricultural revolution was a disaster, um, and it would have been a much better world with much smaller numbers of people who were nomadic. And the indigenous Australians had either they knew that or they'd been living that for a very long time, and it worked very yeah. very well. That's a whole discussion. That was um, paradisical. It's, it's a- Actually, paradisical because it's a kind of there wasn't they they had no consciousness of any alternative. They were just in the zone and in this incredible kind of psychic world of with their with an entire worldview and cosmology that made sense in, and was tuned to that to the ecology of a fragile Australian ecosystem. Now, of course, that's not possible. That's not available to us, and it's a very different world. Um, so that, that's the question, and I. So the only thing we can draw upon is this is why I'm involved in design because design is an expression of human intelligence and rationality, and creativity. And I do. I, getting back to your point, I do think that that the landscape is the subject of that. Um, but I don't mean landscape necessarily in a romantic medieval sense of it's got all the answers. I think we have to. We have to work with technology and we have to be open-minded about evolution creating things that are frightening in a way. Um, I think the I think nature, I don't think nature is actually as nice as we think it is. I think nature itself is this incredibly 
inventive, frightening sort of force and, and it, it'll diversify and find solutions to problems that we can't even imagine. And those forces are just working through human intelligence at the moment. We, 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 we see briefly we are the dominant species. The problem, for, the problem is we hold now the fate of so many other species in our hands and we, and, and we probably don't deserve that and we're not, we're not doing it justice. So I, to get back to this issue of mental health, though, I do think there's something in the idea of like the old institution, the old the, the institutions of religion, the institutions of um, um, economic wealth, and all of the, the value systems that we've we've um, held faith in. I, the question is, can they be replaced by a new sense of place, which is planetary, and which is tuned to the earth systems. And can that satisfy us? You've just hit the a, a nail on the head, I think. Absolutely correct. Like there's this kind of gaping hole in modernity where and Jung talks about it, how he states that the human being is religious by nature, was his words. Mm. And that the you know modern man in search of a soul, to paraphrase like the whole issue is that you know Nietzsche's God is dead and we've abandoned that and we've got this big fucking gaping hole that we now fill with God knows what you know. Mm. Can we find something to kind of satiate that part of us that that is right connected right. with an, a natural? But you're right though. Like even as I go to say the natural world, or it's not a, necessarily a pretty thing. It's fucking ferocious. Yeah. Well, it also needs to be reconstructed because we've destroyed, we've we've completely changed it. So yeah, it's a, it's a different dynamic in lots of ways now. That's pretty exciting. I reckon that's exciting in the sense that there's work to be done. So it's not a paradise where you sort of sit on your ass and look at you know pretty picture. Um, it's not blissful. It's actually labour. We need to. It's work. Yeah, it's effort. It's work. It's work. And I think that's a that is a really important point that. Globally, there's a lot of work to do if we could somehow work out an economic system that rewarded people for yeah. their labour. Um, so there's there's a religious revolution that has to occur, which is and can we have an? Is it will there be an earthbound kind of sacredness yeah. in the future? And that that's a religious theological revolution, which is <laughs> happening actually. With I think, and then there's a, an economic revolution that has to occur, and both of those things, the religious and the economic, have to be turned through ideas of ecology to create a kind of new world order where presumably people will draw satisfaction from engaging in the reconstruction of and and the caring for the ecosystem of the planet. Now, having as we say this, you know, I'm, a lot of other people are sort of blasting off to new planets, you know, and are more excited about that than settling down on this one. I think that's both necessary, a necessary thought experiment and actual exploration and kind of folly for, at the time being, but it, it's going to happen regardless, that kind of, that exploration. But yeah. in terms of like a, a new religious space being created, I do see it happening and I, I believe it needs to happen and will happen. Mm. So long as it's organic, to use a shitty term now, people are going to balk if and when it's mandated, if and when a green dictator comes out. Mm. And that can get things done. Believe me, you look at China. Have you seen the Luz Valley Plateau rehabilitation project? Yeah. Like yep. that's fucking yep. incredible what they yep. pulled off. Yep. You know, a, des a desertifying valley system the size of Tasmania yep. got rehabilitated into a human yep. and greater ecologically functioning 
and friendly, productive environment yeah. within a relative blink of the eye. That's incredible. And they did it and they pulled it off. I've looked at the metrics of what they did. It's incredible. Yeah. Do we need that? Well, it's, entire, it's, yeah, it's entirely possible. This is one of those tensions that I'm dealing with a lot right now. It's like, because it's, I've got a bit of a, the, the American uh, libertarian blood pumping through my yeah, bones yeah. a little bit where I get really nervous when people start mandating shit, you know, regardless of how friendly it looks. Tyranny, tyranny comes in green as yeah. well. Um, and President Xi, the Chinese, President Xi said one of the most remarkable things I've ever heard a politician say. In 2013, he said China must move from a GDP civilization to an ecological civilization. It's an official position, philosophy of the party that China is moving through consciously moving into a phase of what he refers to as ecological civilization. So, yes, it is remarkable. At the same time, on the other side of the world, the Americans are the, the left in America is seriously engaged with the Green New Deal. And, you know, we're doing a lot of work on that in the design school. Um, so it's the Americans come at it from a libertarian angle, but still highly creative and mobilising people around certain ideas, in this case, the Green New Deal, whereas the Chinese model will be yeah. top down. And the Chinese will be more effective in the short term, but the price of that is liberty. Well, it's do it or else. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. And that's that's um, a dystopia. Even It's an ecotopia. It's a dystopian ecotopia that's been constructed in China. Um, yeah, that it terrifies you me. Know. There is this this need to balance this relationship to our own apparent impulse to domesticate. But I want to go back to your word, the way you use the word organic, because what's what is happening at the moment? Some of the most interesting things that are happening in terms of technology and creativity at the moment are at are, I would say organic. That is, for example, but they're not organic as in. You know, I'm growing my own vegetables necessarily right. in a really, um, in, 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 yeah. you know, in a kind of an agrarian way. I mean, for example, <clears throat> people are working on producing um, producing things like meat without animals. That kind that's actually a really high tech right. problem, but it's a really important organic problem <clears throat> and an ecological problem on a planetary scale, ultimately. But some of the most interesting work that's being done is organic and about organic right. issues, but it's in a very high tech way. Um, you know, yeah, people looking for new materials and using and designing things at an almost microbiological level. I think that's there's all sorts of frontiers opening up at, the, at that in that yeah. way. People are designing new products and new materials and new foods and and trying to conceive of new ways of life. But it's not it's not caught up in this old dualism of there's modernity, which is all high tech and all and all sort of urban, and then there's an organic alternative, which is medieval and agrarian it's it's not that binary world it's a it's a world where we can does basically it's a, it's something that um ian mccarg who started the landscape architecture program here at penn said said in the 1960s famously he said design with nature 
that was his philosophical position and he produced a book which was really a manual as to how to do that in terms of organising settlement patterns and, yeah. and so on and adjusting adjusting human infrastructure to the landscape. But what's happening now with a new generation of designers are designing with nature at, at across scale, like at a very small scale with very precise tools. I mean, actually, there's a very good example of this in Western Australia with Oren Katz at UWA and the group called Symbiotica. They kind of, they were pioneers of this stuff. I did a talk with Symbiotica. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, Oren was a pioneer or is a pioneer. Yeah, amazing. We don't even know the the suite of technologies and implements and, and modalities and God knows what we will have in 10 years' time, let alone a generation's time. It really is. We kind of have reached something of an event horizon. We're foreseeing yeah. what will be available to us. I mean, you can crunch numbers and say, you know, population will be here, uh, you know, resources will be there, da-da-da-da. But in terms of innovations, the sky's the limit now because, you know, nanotech, biotech, quantum computing, you name right. it, let alone the integration right. of all these things and God knows what comes out the other end. My only concern, again, would be it's the same. It's the old atom bomb issue. Will we have the wisdom basically to handle it, or will we still will we be the toddler with the Uzi yeah. again? Yeah. Well, it seems. I guess we have to be positive in that regard. We are. Are well. Are we learning from our lessons, and are we beginning? Are we becoming better at handling the tools of technology? Probably. We're probably getting more mature as a species. We know the consequences. I think we are. Yeah, we can. We know that there are negative consequences. We're not. We're not so naive as to believe that you can just reconstruct ecosystems and expect everything to be perfect. I mean, it, so I guess we are getting better, and I think there is a sort of. Um, but that said, if you look at the state of the world and with the climate crisis bear see will the climate crisis create just a you know an apocalyptic scenario or will we be able to get through it and adjust our systems to the earth system that's the question isn't it well i think we'll get through it we're like roaches will we get through this bottleneck and come out the other end sort of smarter and better organized and adapted or, or will it collapse yeah 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 or is it just going to displace millions, billions of people, lead to violence and complete chaos. I mean, it's kind of up in the air, isn't it? It's very uh, precarious. Do you ever get a feeling like, okay, this is complete fluff, but from a certain angle it almost looks as if the proliferation of sapiens along with all of our toys and myth-making and uh, apparatus and whatnot is part of mm. if one were a sci-fi fantasy <laughs> novel author, could be... Mm part of the incubation of something that we don't have words to describe as it. Do you ever su suspect that all of the otherwise regrettable aspects of, of history and many of the things we've discussed so far, ecological degradation and et cetera, mm. are inevitable but necessary, like a scaffolding to build and birth something that is coming, that is that is not quite, an, I don't have the words, not inevitable, not necessary, I don't want to drench this in like a sense of destiny, but do you have a sense of like our positive potential and what that could be? Is there a meaning to history? Is that too trite a question? I, I, I mean, I obviously, no, no, it's well, obviously not too trite. It's it's a question that you know every thoughtful person has to think, has to concern themselves with, and 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 again against 
you know, against the impossibility of answering that question, we we make up our world, right? We make up our lives. And I, it, I don't think there is a grand plan. I don't think nature knows its own future. I think it makes itself up as it goes. Um, and I don't think that the gods have created the earth as an experiment to entertain them. Um, you know, it's possible, I suppose, that they're, that that was Zeus originally asked Pythagorean um, uh, Prometheus to make humans as a form of entertainment and give give us just enough consciousness so that we would be interesting pets and then and then he said well you know but be careful don't give them fire because in other words don't yeah. give them technology because then they'll become gods which of course we we have become and what are we going to do about it yeah and that well what are we going to do about it and so the narratives there are the old. The colonial narrative is, oh, we have to expand and we're going to go to other planets and this is this is our destiny. It's a manif- the manifest destiny of what used to be, you know, the, the, the idea of, of um, colonising the world is now, you know, we're stretching out to a sort of um, cosmological geography. I, I, or, or alternatively, it's... Um, it's more like the, what the, the French philosopher Bruno Latour speaks about is coming back to Earth, and that's the difficult yeah. one. Like we already are in space. We don't need yeah. to go into space. For God's yeah. sake, we're in space. The question is can we live in space on this particular mm. rock? So, and this is one of my very last questions before I, I let you go for the, your morning and my evening. If you weren't quite a god, but say you were an emperor, the green dictator we were talking mm-hmm. about, a benevolent one, I hope. Mm-hmm. If you had yep. policy, just a policy-making decision, are there things that you could see, the decisions that could be made and changes that could be made in terms of policy that, that you would like to see enacted to get us closer to a conscious, balanced relationship with the world around us? Yep. I mean, I think the big one is a redistribution of wealth and... So I would have a crack at that if I could wave my wand. I think if the, the redistribution of wealth and then the gainful employment of, of a global population in ecological yeah. reconstruction, I think the experiment, the, the attempt to make an economy out of that and to make a theology out of that is pretty interesting without necessarily resorting to the tyrannical Chinese model Um I think that is pretty interesting. I'm working on something now that might interest you too, which is, again, I always think it's important to bring things back to, well, I I work in design, so I'm interested in designing things, but I'm working on a concept now called the World Park, and that is, um, you know, we had national parks in the the 19th and 20th century where we sort of fenced off the scenic bits and... And they were great. National parks are really important. Um, and now we have what we call protected areas, which is a global estate. About 15% of the world's terrestrial surface is now locked up in so-called mm. protected areas, which gives us the global conservation estate. And I'm interested in the idea of a world park where you connect all of these protected areas so species can migrate um, and adapt to climate change because if you lock species up in isolated fragments, they'll eventually die. You need to open up pathways between all of the protected areas and you need to do that on a global scale. And so the idea of a world park as a new form of landscape that transcends national boundaries and connects a whole lot of biologically rich but threatened parts of the world I think is a nice idea. 
So I'd get to work on some get to work on something like well, that. It's funny you say that because I actually have a couple of questions regarding that kind of thing because there's this rewilding movement that's um, yep. going on at the moment. There's different threads to it, right? There's rewilding of the individual human self and the human you know, humans at large, like getting back to nature and one's natural self and a slightly des- less domesticated version of oneself. And then there's rewilding in terms of locking up existing wilderness, greenfields, agricultural land and rehabilitating it. And like they're doing in Scotland, mm returning the lynx, returning the beaver, returning the moose to certain parts of Europe, bear, et cetera. And then there's Pleistocene rewilding where they actually go a step further and reintroduce analog Mm. species of species that have within relatively recent geological history gone extinct. Anyway, that's a whole different step. But it's basically looking at the world as in these kind of like not quite city states, but these cities with their surrounding agricultural lands or whatever that looks like, and then in between being largely rewilded with these vast corridors of quote-unquote wilderness habitat corridors running in between, linking everything up. That was a question I had for you. So, Well, that is, you're right, creating so-called land corridors on a, on a landscape scale and weaving those corridors through existing land uses that are usually, um, you know, they don't, industrial landscapes and agricultural industrial landscapes do not allow any other forms of life at the moment. So they do need to be reconstructed. We do need to achieve connectivity for other species. That is a big deal. If if you want a viable planet and a a healthy landscape, you need to not just have little patches of protected areas. You do need to forge the connections and open up the pathways. Reticulation, in a sense. Yeah, you open up. Well, you've got quite, it's like the Guandanaland project in southwestern yeah. Australia. It was one of the first. And Richard Hobbs yeah. out of UWA. I mean, that's really important work. And the work to do it, like you spoke before, of a theological space. Yeah. And I've said this before to another bloke that I interviewed, a guy called Neil Spackman, who did a kind of greening the desert project in Saudi Arabia. I've been coordinator on projects where I'm in charge of looking after and coordinating volunteers and the woofers. Yep. And I've seen the hunger and the thirst and the enthusiasm that people have for this stuff. Yeah. And I know I would have happily spent my 20s sleeping on a bloody straw mat on the floor and wearing a horsehair shirt and eating gruel (laughs) so long as I knew the work I was doing was this kind of work i would have done it and there are people ready willing and able to do it it's the economic model that allows it to be done i think which is the clincher well there's a lot of talk here at the moment about forming a conservation core i mean the americans have done it in the past with the new deal in the early 20th century there's a lot of talk about that now and it's getting close to real Mm. policy um so yeah putting people to work on landscape related issues i mean you've got to again Again, you do have to be careful. There are these aren't necessarily. There's a lot of tough landscape out there now that needs to be restored. This is now that we've just started the United Nations decade of ecological restoration, and a lot of but but the actual work of do, of doing that, it's not pretty. I mean, it's not. This is not going up to Byron Bay and sitting on the beach for two years. You no. know, you, to get out there and do the work in the, some of this tough territory. But I think it would be immensely enriching. I think it would be a fantastic experience. I have great faith that that's not the issue. 
I really do. From what I've seen, people are really ready to do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just having the work available to them. They don't have to make a million bucks doing it, but just have their way paid for it at the very least. I've watched people do it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay. Richard Weller, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for indulging my my ranting. Yep, you're welcome. If the listeners wanted to search out your stuff, is there anywhere in particular they should head to? Uh, they could. They just have to... Google it, I suppose, my name and... Google Richard Weller. All right. Yeah. All right, mate. Well, thank you very much. I really do appreciate you taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, mate. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All the best. Ta-da. Yep. Cheers. Bye for now.